do come in. You are most graciously welcome to Tens on Tens, a girl talk comedy podcast in which two tens make top ten lists about whatever they choose and shoot the shit, as it were. So procure the libation of your choice and, pardon my candor, sit down, shut up, and listen. Here are your hosts, the debutantes of debauchery, the queens of crass, the mistresses of muckrockery, Emma and Lo. This, this is iCarly in three, two, one. You know, <laughs> you see. <laughs> All right. Hi, Tens. Did Hi, you miss tens. us? We're back. Oh, we missed you. Oh, my God. So I'm so proud of us for making it through the last, like, three months of the year because I feel like a lot has happened since we, like, we're like, okay, bye. We need a fucking break. What even was the last episode? It uh, was, like, right before Halloween. Oh, wow. Really? So, yeah. Long vacation. Yeah. So, for us right now, it's like middle of January. And I imagine you guys will be hearing this by the end of the month, which is so exciting. So, by then, we'll have reached our one year anniversary. Can you believe Aww, that? Wait. Yeah. That's so cute. I was hoping to release this on the 31st, which is when our first episode went live. So, okay. Yeah. This is our official um, anniversary post. Uh, oh, our baby's one. Yeah. That's she's so one. Um, but yeah, it's been pretty interesting um, past few months. Do you have any notable occurrences that the people need to know about? Um, well, you had a birthday, mm-hmm. and then by the time they listen to this, I will have had a birthday. Yeah, that's so true. Sagittarius and Capricorn queen. Yeah. Here. So that's notable. Hopefully mine will be notable. We don't know yet. Oh, but. absolutely. I'm going to be there. <laughs> so. True. Noteworthy. <laughs> um, what else? Lots of therapy. Lots of working. Yeah. Lots of not doing fun research anymore, which now I can edit this out, but didn't didn't you acquire a uh, one boyfriend? One unit of boyfriend. One yes, unit I did. of boyfriend. That was notable as well. Um, you can you notice I'm like scared to mention it because I don't want to jinx it. Of course. But of yes, course. I acquired one unit of boyfriend. That's that's <laughs> worth celebrating, I think, and he's so yeah. cute. Thank you. Um, let's see. I don't know how little he is. He's pretty tall, isn't he? He is tall. I wore we went to we went out for like New Year's Eve. And I wore heels, and he was still taller than me. And I'm 5'9". A win. So we're doing good. Yeah, I think that that's like, you know, as long as they can just, like, crest slightly above your head when you're in heels, that's perfect. Crest. I love that. Uh, Sponsored by Crest. No, I'm just kidding. Sponsored by Crest. Um, As far as, like, my side of things, I guess the only thing going on new is that I got that job, which, like, is fun. I got a marketing gig, okay, which is, I, I know you're very familiar with, but I got my very first professional marketing gig the week of Thanksgiving, and I'm in the food service industry now, and the avian flu took out all the turkeys, and Butterball was one of our clients. Oh my the God, weekend, I didn't know that. The weekend of Thanksgiving, my very first, like, day on the job, and then also Twitter decided to die, like, randomly. Oh, yes, yes. And so I was like, cool, 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 cool. Throw you to the wolves immediately. <laughs> yeah, so, like. Gosh, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Oh, you'd think. I don't know. It's mostly just me and, uh, like, a lot of people that are older than me. And, like, I want to say, like, 50% of my job is telling people, like, you cannot embed a PDF with working <laughs> hyperlinks into an email without editing the code. And I know that goes over your head. So I'm not going to, like... Oof. That's what they hired you for. Right. Yeah. Except that, no, I'm not doing that <laughs> shit. I'm, I'm not a coder. I'm a designer. Anyway, so that's it. Um, We wanted to kind of come back to you guys with a fun topic. Um. And I guess when it comes to, like, first episodes, I always want to try to do something kind of emblematic, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, to to me, our show is very feminist, right? We're, you and I are huge feminists. So talking about women, making a show for women, by women, about women, 
is so fun. So I love doing that. So I thought that we would do a topic on just like interesting women in history, um, cool bitches nobody knows about that we can yeah. talk about. Like you, you probably never heard of, but we're gonna tell you about them today. Yeah, and so if you've you heard of them, it. you're cool. You're yeah. cool, right? Um, so yeah, I have so many. I had a lot of fun doing this, and there was a lot of women on there. Like I was like, oh my god. What? How come I never heard about this? This is life changing. Although I don't know if it's maybe my like public public school education, but I went to my cousin's house and I was telling her about like kind of the mm-hmm. podcast research and what the topic was. And I mentioned like three names. She's like, oh, yeah, the woman who did this. Oh, yeah, the woman who did this. Yeah. I was like, wait, how do you know this? Yeah. So I'm a little worried that everybody's already going to know. But I think it's just, you know, beyond what's in your normal like textbook, like high school textbook. Right. right? It's um, we're not going to be talking about like, you know, Anne Boleyn or, you know. People like that, that you've heard their names. Yeah. You might know these if you're really into history or if you're really into, like, you know, feminism. Yeah. <laughs> um, like reading? Yeah, like reading. <laughs> it's fine. But a lot of these people I had never heard of. So I was like, you know, I'm a pretty well-read bitch. Might as well. Um, so I figure I can start us off. Or did you want to go first this time? Oh, by all means. Kick us off. Okay. So um, – the first person I wanted to talk about was somebody I'd never heard of before. Her name's Luisa Casati. Have you ever heard of her? Mm-hmm. So she was born um, Luisa Amant. So by the way, these notes that I have, um, I literally copied and pasted <laughs> them from the internet. And I'm so sorry. I don't. I think I just got this from her Wikipedia page. So there's that. Uh, Luisa Casati was born in Milan in 1881. So I found like a lot of the people I I'd researched were born around that time. For some reason, like, the Belle Epoque to, like, the Gilded Age era ended up being, like, super fucking cool. Anyway, um, her father, Alberto, was a wealthy entrepreneur in a textile sector, uh, and who was awarded the title of Count by King Umberto as token of gratitude, um, blah, blah, blah. Luisa and her elder sister, Francesca's wealthy family, had a comfortable life and a good education, uh, but she found it really fucking boring, which, <laughs> like... Uh, Rich girl. First one probably. Yeah, right. Um, Although not back then. 1880s probably. Right, right. (laughs) Um, So she hated being taught at home by tutors and all of that. Um, But that was pretty customary. So she went in line with it. It it was just the the boringness of her life that kind of inspired her to just completely make a 180. When she was like, I don't know, 19, she decided she was going to get married. She's like... I think I'm it's ready time. now. It's time. I have to find a husband. And I was like, yeah, camp. Love that. Um, so <laughs> she chose a man whose position was higher than hers, which was customary, right? Obviously, you're trying, if you're Level a girl, up. right? Um, so she became a Marquess. <laughs> she was just like, life's boring. I'm going to marry him. Like, and you a, said her Marquis. dad was a count already? Yeah. I love these words. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So she's like, I'm going to be a Marquess. Uh, so her official title when she married this guy was Marquesa Luisa Casari Stampa, which is... Hot. Wow, I'm turned on. <laughs> right? And I love the designer Marquesa, so, like, <laughs> good stuff. Um, it was a, after adopting this role of wife and mother in high society, she realized she was like, no, I hate this, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she, Never happy. <laughs> so the pair actually separated um, in 1914, but they lived in separate houses, but they didn't actually, like, divorce. And I think the only reason their marriage ended was because her husband eventually passed away in, like, the 40s. Um death do us part yeah but they were like fuck it whatever they kind of had an understanding and they each like had lovers and stuff so Louisa had plenty of dalliances with other men and women um but one of her most popular ones that people know about is with this guy named Gabriel de Anuzio um who she was like his mistress and his muse so he was a writer uh Louisa I want to ha- be someone's muse. I know, right? I literally, that's all I want. I want to be someone's muse, bitch. I'm so inspiring. <laughs> huh. 
Um, so Louisa had quite suddenly decided to dedicate her life to becoming living art because she was with this artistic guy, right? Um, she drastically changed her appearance and personality, and she went on to inspire at least a dozen different painters and writers in her time. Several book characters were formed after her personality. Several paintings were inspired by her eccentric, bold look, which featured large green eyes rimmed in dark makeup well before the flapper era. And her, Julia Fox. Yeah, and Julia Fox. Um, she, like, would powder her skin till she was like the color of like a corpse which was like after Marie Antoinette's time and it was not common for people to do this and then she dyed her hair like a bright orange Whoa. <laughs> I know and this is like 1800s right and so people were like what the fuck um she what's it what else did I write here yeah she this was during the belly Epoque. she would mostly be associated with Venice and Paris that was where she moved um she would give all these like opulent banquets in her palaces that she owned because she was a Marquess right um, oh, yes, we can't forget that. She was right. a Marquess. And the stuff she wore was crazy. So she would wear, like, jewel-encrusted creations. Um, and I think Cartier's famous, like, Panthera watch was actually designed for her. So if you've seen that watch, which I saw it on Mila Kunis in a movie last night, it's pretty important. Um, <laughs> so she quickly became famous for her outlandish fashion and personality. In Venice, the Marquesa would be seen walking the narrow streets at night naked with only her fur coat. Uh, she would have servants with torchlights follow her, illuminate her as she walked, <laughs> exhibiting the living work of art. And I'm like, that's big dick energy. Yeah. Like, I was so, just amazing. Um, her extravagant lifestyle continued at Villa San Michel. So among other items she brought with her, uh, she had several snakes that she wore as jewelry. <laughs> okay, Britney Spears. Yeah, two leashed cheetahs, a pair of greyhounds, two gilded gazelles, and an owl to liven up the gardens of the villa, and then she refurnished all of the rooms entirely to her own taste. Uh, the island kind of became like like a collection of artists, and it was like a haven for a lot of uh, LGBT people at the time. So she was always at these decadent parties, famously attended several orgies. Uh, <laughs> she often paid artists to quote commission her immortality and just paint her which like there's so many paintings and sculptures of her it's crazy um she even patronized fashion designers like fortuny and poiret who if you know anything about like clothes would go on to inspire coco chanel which is really interesting because later when um louisa actually ended up having to auction off a lot of her stuff because she was spending too much money uh chanel <laughs> ended up buying most of her things from her oh, um so when she died in 1957, she was buried in her leopard skin finery and with a pair of false eyelashes, um, <laughs> with one of her Pekingese dogs. Oh I was my! Like, wait, was the Pekingese already dead? I think or? so. Yeah. Okay. And then her gravestone simply reads, "Age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety," which is a quote from Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra. And I was like, "This bitch is kind of everything to me." Wow. <laughs> yeah. Right? I'd wow. never heard of her before, but no. I love studying a muse. And the fact that this person in, like, the 1800s, walking around naked, going to orgies, wearing snakes. Right. She's like, oh, I'm so bored of my life. Like, I'm going to become a living icon. Yeah. That's exactly what she did. That's amazing. Yeah. I would love to look up. We should post a picture of her on mm. the Instagram. Oh, she's so be interested. cool looking. Yeah. Definitely, like, she has this, like, short little page boy fluffy haircut that's, like, bright red. And all of her paintings, she's, like, naked as fuck. Like... <laughs> 
but just looks scary almost. And I also love that she commissioned artists to paint her. She's like, <laughs> she's I will pay you to do this. Big, big art, like, yeah. supporter of the arts, but that's why they all loved her, and we're all just, like, flocking around her all the time. Yeah. I get it. She was, she was like, a queen, and everyone loved her, so. Oh, my gosh. went out for Louisa. You know how we did a dream rotation? Mm-hmm. I would, I think I would like to add her <laughs> to my dream rotation. Yeah, right. But I don't know, she might bring a Cheeto, which would I know. make you feel weird when you're high, I feel like. That's amazing. Mine's a little bit more serious. Okay. And a little bit more sad. That's okay. Um, so this is number 10. This is going to be Henrietta Lacks. Have you ever heard of her? Mm-mm. Okay, so I only put her as number 10 because it was more of like a passive badass instead mm-hmm. of like a she's actively a badass. Right. I'm sure she was in real life, but... Um, so she was born in... Um, actually, I don't have the year she was born. Sorry. It was in 1951 when she started having um, complaints of vaginal bleeding. Oh, shit. And she was a young mother. She had five children. Yeah. She was born in Roanoke, Virginia, and still lived there as she was raising her children. So she went to the Johns Hopkins Hospital um, with this complaint of this frequent vaginal bleeding. And so Dr. Howard Jones examined her. He was a renowned gynecologist at the time, and he discovered a huge um, malignant tumor on her cervix. So at this time, Johns Hopkins was one of the only hospitals to serve African-Americans, especially like poor African-Americans, which is what Henrietta was. So Mrs. Lacks began undergoing radium treatments for um, her cervical cancer, and that was pretty much at the time the best medical treatment available. So because of her diagnosis of this um, large malignant tumor, she started undergoing radium treatments for her cervical cancer, which at the time that was kind of the best medical treatment available, although not the best. Obviously, cancer treatment has come a long way since then. But without her consent, um, a sample of her cancer cells was retrieved during a biopsy that were sent to Dr. George Gay's nearby tissue lab, and that's G-E-Y, if anybody Mm -hmm. wants to look this up. So... Dr. Gay was a prominent cancer and virus researcher, and he had been collecting cells from all sorts of patients, regardless of their race or socioeconomic status. He would collect them from this hospital, the Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins Hospital. Yeah. Um, but he noticed that almost every single or every sample he collected quickly died in his lab. Mm-hmm. But he would discover that Mrs. Lack, so Henrietta Lack's cells, were unlike all of the others he had ever seen because they just wouldn't die. That's crazy. They doubled every 20 to 24 hours. Holy shit. Yeah. So today, these cells are nicknamed HeLa cells, so Henrietta Lacks is the two first letters of her first and last name, mm-hmm. um, and they're used to study all sorts of things, so the effects of toxins, drugs, hormones, viruses, etc., without doing any sort of experimentation on humans. So Whoa. they are, like, truly game-changing. They've been used to test radiation effects and poison effects, um, to study the human genome itself, to learn more about the mechanism of viruses and how they work, and they even played a crucial role in the development of the polio and the COVID-19 vaccines. Holy shit. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. But it's a really sad story because, like I said, those cells were taken without her consent. That was, right. like, totally normal medical practice back then. Today, that would not yeah. fly. And she unfortunately passed away on October 4th, 1951, at the age of 31. But her cells continue to impact the world. So these were the first cells that could easily be shared and multiplied in a lab setting, but Johns Hopkins actually never sold or profited from this discovery or the distribution of HeLa cells and does not own the rights to the cell line, but they offered them freely and they're used widely for scientific research. And you know what? Anyone that discovers anything worth a damn should treat their discoveries that way. Yep. Like the guy who invented seatbelts. I know. Because because fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> I totally insane. agree. Um, so Johns, Johns Hopkins actually plays a big role in applauding and participating in the efforts to raise awareness of Henrietta Lacks' life and her story. Um, they, Johns Hopkins could have and should have done more to inform and work with members of the family out of respect for them, Mm -hmm. their privacy and their personal interest. Um, and again, (laughs) 
that consent thing is, would not fly today. Right. So there's obviously some problems there. But through the collection and use of her cells, um, that was an acceptable legal practice in the 1950s. And today, without patient's consent, that would never be that would never be acceptable. So yeah. I put Henrietta Lacks on the list because she she really did change the world mm. um, for virology and all sorts of things. And she has absolutely no idea. That's so crazy. Do you think that she would be like okay with it posthumously? You know, probably. I think so. I think too. I would. Yeah. Be. Yeah. It's the same as like not selling shit that could help the world. Like if yeah. my cells could help the world like that, I think I'd be. I think I'd be like, mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, be like, all right, fine. fine. Go ahead and take a biopsy. Do we know why her cells were so different? No idea. That's crazy. Yeah. I think it was just the nature of the tumor, and it was like kind of the first of its kind that they had ever seen. Um, and it, they just rapidly, you know, they um, regenerated at 20 to 24 hours. Oh, Doubled, excuse me, every 20 to 24 That's hours. crazy. I know. So thank you, Henrietta, for the COVID-19 vaccine. I don't think a lot of us would be out and about yes. or sitting here right now if it wasn't for that. Girl, so. you're appreciated, and we love you, and thanks. thanks. <laughs> um, so my number nine is kind of in a similar science-y vein, um, and it's probably actually someone people might know. Uh, she's definitely someone that comes to mind when people are like, who's a badass woman that doesn't get enough attention? And this is um, famous actress Hedy Lamarr, which do you know about her? Uh, I've heard the name. Hedy Lamarr, yeah. She was um, an actress in the 1930s, but we'll talk about all the other shit she did. Just a very interesting person. So, born Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler. Sorry, what? Hedwig? Hedwig. <laughs> or sometimes pronounced Hedwig, right? Um, in 1914, to a Jewish family in Austria... Hedy Lamarr fled to the U.S. after the country was annexed by Germany in 1938, went on to become an exceptionally famous uh, film star during Hollywood's golden age. She's been described as one of the greatest movie actresses of all time and as one of the most influential scientists of our modern technology. But she was not given that credit until, like, the late 80s. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Yeah. A little late. <clears throat> well, for a lot of reasons, we'll get into that, mostly b because the stuff she invented was so good the military was like can we get that please immediately and then they it was confidential until the 80s pretty much so nobody knew she had done all this which is so cool so um as a child she showed an interest in acting she was fascinated by the theater uh and film and at age 12 she won her first beauty contest in vienna at um, 12 at 12 wow yeah sexualizing minors I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, she she was gorgeous. She was the person they based the look of Snow White off of, right? Oh, okay. So they like they they would draw her, right? And she's mm -hmm. she's got that beautiful fair skin and dark hair and big eyes, just absolutely stunning. Um, but more than a pretty face, obviously. During this time, her love for engineering and science began. So her father would often take her out on walks and just explain how certain technologies function because she was so curious. She would always ask him, and he was like, "Well, this way and this way." Um, and that started just, like, a lifelong passion for her. So it's awesome that her dad took the time to actually, like, tell her about these things, which yeah. is because it's not very common for for fathers no. to talk to their daughters that way. No. And you know kids parents. are always like, why? 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 Yeah. Why? So yeah. parents are quick to shut that down usually. Yep. So she began acting professionally pretty quickly. Um, in 1930, she scored several roles, including her most controversial one, which was the 1933 film Ecstasy. Um, and this is a foreign film. So it wasn't when she was in Hollywood, but one of her first gigs. Um, the film depicted an 18-year-old Lamar. She was uh, like a neglected young housewife to an indifferent older man, which is this essentially the um, plot of the movie. But uh, excuse me, it became celebrated and notorious for showing Lamar's face in the throes of an orgasm. 
um, as well as like close-up and brief nude scenes. It's one of the first movies to do that. Um, the film gained recognition in Rome and throughout Europe where it was regarded as artistic, but of course, uh, Americans considered it obscene and it was banned in both the U.S. and in Germany. So that was where her career like began and people were like, oh, you're the Good controversy. You're, <laughs> you're the orgasm girl. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so in 1933, at age 18, same age, Lamar married Friedrich Mandel, who was 33. Um, gross. He was an arms merchant and munitions manufacturer in 1933. Oh. So, know that. Uh, <laughs> he was reported to be the third richest man in Austria. So, crazy. Lamar's parents, who are both Jewish, <laughs> were like, we don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they were really suspicious of Mandel, which they had reason to be. But um, what was interesting is that Mandel was also Jewish, but he uh, was frequently associated with Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler. Um, Lamar, who was 18. <laughs> who was That's not a good thing to be associated with. <laughs> no. Lamar was married to this man at 18. She's yeah. a fucking child, right? And she's like, this is bad, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Um, so, you know, I know this is like a weird way to celebrate somebody but she saw that this was happening and these people were coming over to this party and so this is really cool um she didn't quite understand the situation she was getting herself into when she married him but in her biography she described mandel to be extremely controlling husband who strongly objected to her simulated orgasm scene in ecstasy (laughs) obviously and prevented her from pursuing her acting career so between his controlling nature and the fact that he was literally parading around with nazis um she was like, I'm getting out of here. Because she claimed she was basically kept prisoner in their castle oh home. It was insane. But he knew about those scenes before he married her. Right? They got married around the same time. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, okay. he was like, I don't want you shooting this. And she's like, well, I'm gonna. Uh. Too bad. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Lamar wrote that the dictators in both Italy and Germany attended lavish parties at the Mandel home. Lamar accompanied Mandel to business meetings where he conferred with scientists and other professionals involving military technology for the Axis powers. So she was in on these meetings that the Axis powers were having regarding their military technology. Um, These conferences were her introduction to the field of applied science and nurtured her latent talent for science. So people were not really taking her seriously and being like, it's okay, we can talk about, like, military secrets with this fucking woman here. Dummy woman. (laughs) We don't give a shit. Um, So her marriage eventually became unbearable, and she decided to separate herself from both her husband and her country in 1937. Um, In her alleged... uh, autobiography she wrote that she disguised herself as a maid and fled to paris but by other accounts she persuaded mandel to let her wear all of their jewelry to a dinner party and then she disappeared oh that is so badass <laughs> i know I right? so she's like, like oceans oceans 12 literally so like this girl she's she's like 20 at the most and she's just so smart and she's absorbing all of these like secrets and just escapes into the night so i love that yeah um so after she arrived in London, which is where she fled in 1937, she met uh, Louis B. Mayer, who was head of uh, MGM, just, oh, you know, <laughs> on a whim. Big studio. Um, okay. And he was scouting for talent in Europe. And then obviously this gorgeous woman, and he's like, hello. Um, she initially turned down the offer that he made her of like $125 a week or some shit like that, um, but then booked herself onto the same liner as him going to New York. Mm-hmm just to, like, weasel her way in there, and then managed to impress him enough to secure a $500 a week contract. <laughs> a hustler. <laughs> yeah. So um, Mayor persuaded her to change her name to Hedy Lamar for a lot of reasons, but mostly to dins- distance herself from her identity as Orgasm Girl, uh, the ecstasy lady is what people called her, 
and her reputation associated with it and her country. So um, she went on to star in dozens of films, often being typecast as like the tempting seductress, the femme fatale type, right? She's kind of the the outline for that kind of, I guess, character typecast. Um, her ability to transition both linguistically and culturally into American life made her like a huge success. And this natural resourcefulness was often credited to her father's influence on her as a child, which is so cute. Um, but in addition to her father's influence, Lamar was primarily self-taught, no formal training. She often tinkered with various hobbies and ideas, which included a type of traffic stoplight, a tablet that would dissolve into water to make a carbonated drink, um, shit like that, right? <laughs> okay. Just like in her g- garage with her it's chemistry like, mm, I'm set. Bored. Let me make yeah. it. Let me invent something. Right. Um, most of her inventions were not widely used, but in the 1940s, she wanted to create something that would help the Allied forces fight the Nazis as part of the Second World War, and, and she had all this unique information, so she was particularly. Right good with yeah. this and a fuck you to her ex-husband and too. A fu- yeah right so <laughs> she worked with um a composer george uh antiel to develop a new way to steer torpedoes pretty much sorry what yeah wow um, so she had already discovered that radio signals used to control torpedoes could be jammed by the nazis um making them miss their targets and wanted to come up with an unjammable alternative so the pair settled on a system that would randomly switch to different radio frequencies to get around jamming. They, wow. yeah, they used like George's piano. I don't know how to do it, but um, oh, it says here uh, it's known as frequency hopping or FH, uh, spread spectrum communication. It was controlled by a piano player mechanism of Antilles, meaning the system could switch between one of eighty-eight different frequencies for each eighty-eight black and white keys on a piano. Whoa. Yeah, so uh, this is a lot of science-y shit that I don't understand, <laughs> but essentially, for those <laughs> who are more artistically inclined, uh, Lamar and Antiel patented their invention in 1942, but it was classified until 18, uh, 1981. And during that time, the, oh, it was only used in military technology such as sonar and satellite communications. So Lamar invented the concept of spread-spectrum communication, which in turn led to the technologies used today for things like Wi-Fi, GPS, Bluetooth... All of this stuff that just basically runs our life now. Um, and I, I think it's honestly probably some of the best inventions of the past century. Yeah, so, can you imagine where we'd be without Wi-Fi? Right. Oh my gosh. And so the fact that this number one fucking stunner is also like a genius. Orgasm girl saves the day. She saves the day. I love that story so much. It's <laughs> Me too. They need to make a movie about it, they honest really to God. Do. Um, I don't know. Who, who would you cast to play Hetty? I got to show you a picture of her. I'd have to see. I'd have to see. The Met Gala that was famed around tech or based around technology a few years ago. I want to say it was like somebody, maybe Lana Del Rey came with the Hedy Lamar inspired headpiece. She's really oh, like cool. famously wearing this cool star headpiece. I don't know. Let me show you. She did her research then. Oh my god! Instead of just showing up as a robot on the. This carpet. is like yeah. This is like the famous headpiece she's wearing. The oh, star, wow. right? Isn't she she's beautiful? Stunning. I know. Um, and she just seems like such a cool person to know. Yeah. You know? Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Right, I just smart and beautiful and sexually liberated and all of these yeah. things. Fucking I cool. I don't know who I would cast. Who would you cast? Hmm. I did see Mila Kunis in that movie last night, and I was you know that dark haired kind of wide eyed look. Mm-hmm. Maybe her. But... What movie is this that you saw? Oh, it was not good. What was it? It's called Luckiest Girl Alive. Oh, I watched that recently. <laughs> I thought it was good. You didn't like it. It was like it was like a, a lifetime movie, right? That somebody watched and they're like, "What's the opposite of every single lifetime movie trope?" And let's reverse it. Like, girl leaves her big job to marry a man out in the country. Instead, woman breaks up with fiance to take on big job in the city yeah. and also 
other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I will say, anybody who goes to watch that movie, it was like, mm-hmm. there's some trigger warnings that you probably mm-hmm. shouldn't have put in there. Yeah. Quite time. heavy. But, but I can see Mila Kunis doing that. Yeah, I think yeah. she'd kill it. Very cool. Mm-hmm. I will say during my research, I did come across um, this article that had like 10, 10 badass women you probably never heard of. And I do remember reading one that was like the actress who brought us Wi-Fi. Yeah. But I skipped that one. So I'm glad that you did it. Yeah. Because that's oh God, really fascinating. So fascinating. All right. So my number nine is going to be Isabella Lucy Bird. Ooh, I don't know this one. <sighs> I didn't either. Um, she's an unlikely adventure travel writer who saw and did it all. So, born in 1831, Isabella Bird was a 19th century British writer, photographer, and a naturalist. She was described as really outspoken from a super early age. When she was only six years old, she confronted a local member of parliament while he was campaigning and asked him, did you tell my father my sister was so pretty because you wanted his vote? (laughs) Slay. (laughs) Although outspoken, she was unfortunately incredibly frail because she suffered from a lot of health issues. She actually had um, headaches, insomnia, and a spinal tumor. All three at once? All three. Jesus Christ. Doesn't, that's like the opposite of a triple threat. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> so when she went to the doctor, she obviously became pretty close to her doctor because she was there constantly, mm-hmm. but her doctor recommended that she try a, quote, open-air lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So because of this, Isabella learned to ride horses and row and do all sorts of other things and fell in love with being outside. In 1854, she still had many health ailments, and so nobody really, like, Thought that she would make much of it. She'd probably just stay at home. Yeah. But she had her spinal tum- tumor removed, which how they did that successfully back in like, the 1840s, I have no idea. I'm saying, like, crazy time period. <laughs> I know how she survived that, I didn't know. But she had the opportunity to sail to the U.S., and that is when she fell in love with traveling. So throughout her life, she traveled to Australia, which mm. she is rumored to have disliked, which I don't really blame her because of all the animals all there. All these fucking flesh-eating spiders <laughs> and shit. <laughs> so really scary. Um, then she went to Hawaii, and she ended up climbing the Mauna, Mauna Kea. I probably mm. pronounced that incorrectly, but mountain. And then Colorado to horse ride all over the mountains and cover over 800 miles in the Rockies. She then studied medicine. She was like, oh, hard left turn. I'm going to go study medicine. <laughs> I love when they do that. <laughs> and she traveled as a missionary, and she set off to India. So from India, she traveled to Tibet, Kurdistan, and Turkey, and she eventually wound up building a hospital in India. She was um, willing to endure any sort of rough conditions, any sort of harsh weather in the spirit of travel, and because of that, she became one of the foremost travel writers of all time and the first woman. Good for her. Isn't that amazing? Good for her. In 1892, she became the first woman elected as a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. And as you can expect, in 1892, they didn't see women in general as being able to contribute anything to science or Mm -hmm. geographical knowledge. Um, They even went so far as to argue that women were not well suited to being explorers. Okay. (laughs) She was like, okay. And um, one thing that I read specifically, I didn't write this down, so I may get the wording wrong, but a lot of women back then, obviously, who rode horses would ride side saddle because Mm -hmm. they would have these very elaborate outfits on and dresses, exactly. But she actually rode front, like, so legs on each side through the Rockies, and she got so much shit for doing that because she she was described as, like, being a man. They were, like, so manly. They were so upset about it. But anyway, she uh, went on to prove everybody wrong, and she eventually passed away in 1904, but she is remembered for her amazing travel writing and photography and for visiting every single continent besides Antarctica. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is fantastic. Yeah, her pho- her photographs are really, really cool. I would recommend anybody listening, look up Isabella Lucy Bird's photography. She has so many, <clears throat> it's people-focused, and she has a lot of 
different people from all walks of life that she used to take photographs of. That's so cool. Yeah. That's so cool. Pretty cool bitch. Man, <laughs> I this was so fun to do research on because there are just so many interesting, cool, powerful, fascinating women oh, out I there. Oh, I totally agree. And just they were absolutely neglected by history. And it, we yep. only knew about some of the shit that they did because – you know, they were smart enough to keep track of it or somebody else was randomly like, let me just investigate this because nobody thought it was worth anything. Which, are you joking? <laughs> yeah, if I could go back, and I, I have some friends who majored in history and don't have jobs now, so I probably still wouldn't do it. But if I could go back, I would major in history because I think it's just so fascinating, especially the underdogs that you never hear of. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that a lot of women's focused history, like the stuff that women were doing, they were relegated to certain spheres mm-hmm. and things. And so... It's not like they're on battlefields, but the work that they're doing is like mental chess behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. And that's so much more interesting to me. But I feel like history classes always focus on, well, such and such battle yeah. or like, right. fuck, I'm so tired. Like of the major me. event. Yeah, exactly. I'm tired of that. Give me like <laughs> the fashion history. Give me like the gossip of court. That stuff yeah. is fascinating to me. And it tells me so much more about people. I don't know. That's just my bugaboo. I read. No, I totally agree. And I love I love this episode because now I have people that I can like talk about that I had I no idea I know existed before Ugh, which, so tell me more which brings me to my eighth person this shit boiled my blood okay <laughs> I was so mad <laughs> okay because we all know who Paul Revere is right you know yeah I will before you even get into this when I went to Boston mm-hmm. I went to Paul Revere's house oh my god what a fucking fraud I hate him he wasn't even the only one to do it why do we care so much no he wasn't the only one to do it he didn't even do it well I will <laughs> tell you someone who did do it well though uh, and it's a 16 year old Sybil Lettington <laughs> okay here's the story I actually I have heard of her yeah yeah um, she's so fucking cool. There's actually a statue of her on a horse, and she's just, like, slaying. She did a bunch of cool shit, but this story is really interesting. So, on April 16th, uh, 1761, Sybil Ludington was born to Abigail and Henry Ludington. Soon after, the young family moved to Dutchess County, New York, and settled on 229 acres of undeveloped Ooh. land. Yep. That's a lot of acres. And there, Abigail gave birth to 11 more children. Oh. <laughs> you need, like... <laughs> Get off of her! (laughs) 20 acres per child. Oh my gosh. It's called sharecrop. Yeah. (laughs) You burn them and start over the next year. Anyway. Um, On April 25th, 1777, a 2,000-man British force commanded by General William Tyron? Tryon, sorry. Landed with... I'm trying. I'm trying. Literally trying. Landed with six warships, which is excessive. Um, the British soldiers began to search for stores of Continental Army supplies. So six warships to show up and search through people's boxes, which seems excessive. That's very excessive. Excessive, right? It's like tiny dick energy. Yeah. But as they moved through the stock, they marked boxes that belonged to British loyalists um, and informants, right, with chalk. And then they told those uh, that those without markings were to be destroyed. So they were just burning people's shit. Which, like, okay, makes sense tactically hmm. from a war perspective. But it is literally sharecropping. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> um, so most of these cases were full of various foodstuffs, so just, like, flour, beef, pork, sugar, molasses, that kind of thing. Um, and some that, of them, that were being burned? Yeah. Okay. So it, was like, it wasn't even, like, you know, ammunition yeah, like, or whatever. Why are you just doing They're trying doing to starve people out. Everything like, changed when the fire nation attacked. <laughs> literally. Literally. <laughs> but what they discovered is that some of the boxes were also full of wine and rum. <laughs> Which, don't burn those. Don't, and they did not. Um, so 
<laughs> by the way, all these notes are from uh, womenhistoryblog.com. They, they're, they're great. Um, anyway, so they didn't, they didn't burn the wine or the rum. The British soldiers found it and decided to consume it rather than destroy it. We <laughs> love some teenage boys. <laughs> um, ponytails. <laughs> yeah. Fires were started by the drunken soldiers immediately. <laughs> um, and military discipline broke down quickly. Uh, things began to get chaotic and violent very fast. Uh, so messengers were dispatched in all directions to announce the British arrival and news of the fires. It wasn't even a battle. They were just being assholes. <laughs> and so they're like, can we get somebody out? Yeah. Um, so Colonel Henry Ludington was respected militia officer, uh, and he commanded the 7th Regiment of the Dutchess County Militia. So a uh, volunteer regiment of local men during the Revolutionary War. Uh, he was in charge of the local militia and then later became an aide to George Washington during the Battle of White Plains. But at the time of the Danbury attack, Ludington's militia numbered about 400 men. Significant amount, you know, not 2,000, but... Yeah, I was going to say 400 versus... <laughs> but, it's a, but it's a big enough group of men. They were getting a bunch of several different militias and together. And they were drunk. Yeah, right. So that's a plus. So there's that. <laughs> but, like, it's a big chunk of men that mm-hmm. would definitely help with this, so... Um, an, an exhausted messenger was dispatched from Danbury with the news of the attack, and he reached the Ludington home at approximately 9 p.m. Colonel Ludington began to organize the militia, but his men had returned to their homes for spring planting and were scattered throughout the area. The messenger was exhausted from running <laughs> and not familiar with the area. So 16-year-old oh Sybil... I'd make it like a mile before right, I would have I'm to done. pass out. Could you imagine, like, time before Twitter or like, or texting somebody? He just does not travel fast. No, you're like, we gotta, you gotta, can you run really fast? <laughs> Here, take these Nike suits. <laughs> it's like season eight of Game of Thrones. And you know their, you know their shoes were not comfortable. Fuck no. no. <laughs> oh, imagine the, bl- the blisters. Yeah. Oh, not the pantaloons, the chafing. I can only imagine. <laughs> in, in, in pure wool. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> Yikes. Anyway, so 16 year old Sybil hears the commotion. And is like, I'm familiar with the area. And they're like, okay. So uh, she and her horse named Star, I know, they left immediately um, to sound the alarm of the approach of enemy troops. Her act of patriotism is often compared to the more famous of Paul Revere, despite the fact that she was half his age and rode twice the distance. Yeah, like, come on, Paul. (laughs) Fuck Paul Revere. I'm so sorry. What an idiot. He does look like Jack Black, though. (laughs) <laughs> I'll give him that. Yeah. I will say there is a museum about everything because when we went into the Paul Revere house, it was like this is a spoon that Paul Revere used. I was like, Fuck that who guy. cares? Fuck that guy. I want to see Sybil stuff. I'll tell she you, she was sixteen. You said sixteen. Wow. Yeah. And the reason Paul Revere became so like known is because of the poem that was written about him. Um, so I actually did find a Sybil poem, which is uh, "Listen, my children, and you shall hear of a lovely of a lovely feminine Paul Revere." <laughs> who rode an equally famous ride through a different part of the countryside, where Sybil Ludington's name recalls a ride as daring as that of Paul's. Ooh. I love that, right? Yeah. Um, get bent, Paul Revere. <laughs> so, um, this is a Paul Revere hate club. <laughs> yeah. So Sybil's ride started after 9 p.m. on April 26, 1777. She used a stick to prod her horse and knock on doors. She even managed to defend herself against a highwayman with her father's musket. A guy like came up to attack oh. her and she like, kicked his ass. So pistol whipped him. <laughs> yeah, literally. She yelled for the men to meet at daybreak, and when she had returned about dawn the next morning, soaked from the rain and exhausted from riding for more than forty miles, most of the four hundred men were ready to march, which is so cool, right? She was just whoosh, drenched. Anyway, uh, she was congratulated for her heroism by friends and neighbors, and also General George Washington came and oh, congratulated cool. her personally. Yeah. So it's not known. 
whether during her lifetime any attention was given to her for her ride beyond that, mm-hmm. though. Like, nothing. Um, so just before the bicentennial of the American Revolution in 1976, Sybil Ludington was adopted as a symbol by the National Women's Party for use in campaigning for equal rights uh, amendment. And in uh, 1975, Ludington became the 35th woman to be honored on a United States postal stamp. Dramas, an opera, and a marathon have been named for her. Oh, very cool. Yeah. You know what? That actually sounds like an American Girl doll story, doesn't I it? I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> it really Ugh. does. What? Get on American it. American Girl, what are you doing? <laughs> um, also, fun fact. Did you, I'm sure you know this, but um, those of you who do not, who are listening... Paul Revere never even said the British are coming. Fuck. The, what did he do? The regulars are coming out is what he said, actually. Oh, the regulars? The regulars are, are coming out. What does that mean? Like, Good question. <laughs> I have no idea. The regular schmagulars. But I just, I love, that's the thing about, like, re, it's like revisionist history. Mm-hmm. Like, it all gets so lost. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there, I will say there was no mention of Sybil at this museum that I went to. Fuck. Ugh. This is what we're mentioning her here. Pour That's one out right. for my girl. That's 16 right. years old, making a difference. Amazing. 16 her year olds star. now are annoying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, but they have Twitter. But they have Twitter. They That's have true. Twitter. They they hashtag shit. Thank you. That's the same thing. <laughs> That's how they get the word That's out. That's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> they would just cancel the British. You're canceled. <laughs> you can. They have to make a YouTube apology. <laughs> the British. That's over. That's so. over. <laughs> God. Okay, so my number eight. I'm going to tell you about her, and then I'm going to tell you why she's so important. And it was just, like, a small little anecdote that I, anecdote that I thought was so interesting that mm-hmm. I could not include it, even though it's, like, mm-hmm. kind of small. Not really, but... So this is Maria Sibylla. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Marian. So M-E-R-I-A-N. Mm-hmm. So I'll refer to her as Maria from now on. So she was born April 2nd, 1647, in Frankfurt, Germany. And she was a naturalist, and she was a nature artist, and she's really well known for her illustrations of insects and plants. So specifically, she would, like, pair the insect with the plant that they would consume mm-hmm. so that people would associate them in, the, in her mind. Um, and you've probably seen these pictures. Like, if you Googled her work, um, mm-hmm. they're they're pretty standard. You know those, like, posters that you can get at, like, museums mm-hmm. and stuff that have, like, the plants? It's probably her work. Like, That's cool. It was so detailed, um, so well done. So in her early days... Um, Oh, there we go. She studied painting at her family's Frankfurt home. Um, She collected insects and other specimens for compositions. And in those formative years, nature, um, plants and caterpillars in particular, she's really obsessed with those, became Marian's primary subjects of artistic interest. Interest. Sorry, I'm supposed Mm -hmm. to be calling her Maria. She eventually started her own caterpillar collection in order to study the insect's maturation into butterflies. So even during these early years of her career, Maria's observations and illustrations of insects and the plants that they would consume in various life stages were remarkable for their scientific quality. So really, people had not seen detail of this caliber before. That's crazy. So she depicted in detail the metamorphosis of moths and butterflies. Each insect, like I said, was shown on or beside its plant food source and was accompanied by text describing the stage of metamorphosis that that insect was in. Um, the work, her work was super celebrated for scientific accuracy and for bringing a new standard of precision to any sort of scientific illustration. Um, the year of her death, actually, her paintings were purchased for Peter I, the Tsar of Russia, mm-hmm. which is pretty interesting. So, in a lot of ways, Maria was one of the first, like, quote-unquote, science moms, so she did actually have a family, and she was trying to balance the challenges of her research against a demanding family life. Right. Um, all of this at a time when women were, like, being burned at the stake for, like, being witches, for being educated. And awesome. Being able to read. I love it. So, definitely um, a hazardous, hazardous career path that she chose. 
Her work on caterpillars was a super key contribution to an ongoing debate. So if you remember back in the time, so this was around um, the 1650s, 1660s, there were people that believed that life kind of arose from inanimate matter. So like maggots and flies were from meat. Like they, Fun, they didn't have life stages. They gotcha. just kind of appeared out of mm, nowhere. Yummy. Um, raindrops produce frogs, like that kind of thing. Okay. So people didn't think that there were like life stages. Mm-hmm. So the really interesting thing about Maria is that by breeding butterflies from an egg to adult for several generations and documenting the metamorphosis stage, people thought for so long that caterpillars and butterflies were two totally separate insects, wow. but she showed that they're actually the same thing. Damn, and first grade classes were never the same. And exactly. <laughs> the hungry, hungry caterpillar would not be here without her. So I just thought that was really interesting. She basically proved that life does not arise from pre-existing life. Life doesn't come from raindrops. That's right. Maybe a little bit. Raindrops on roses. <laughs> Yeah, she was really cool. Um, I would highly recommend looking up her art because it is very, very beautiful. And I really want to get like a poster. Oh, of yeah. One of her That'd be cool. Things. My mom has, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's an old encyclopedia and it has some of her drawings in there. That's I've always so loved cool. them. I love reading encyclopedias. I know. They're so interesting. And it's like, because, you know, if you go on Wikipedia or whatever, you kind of have to know what you want to find first. You might be able to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole through clicking through stuff, but encyclopedias, you could just open one up and be like, what the New fuck? Story. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is fun. Remember I, when they used to sell them door to door? Like people would. What? Like, what? In the, yeah, I remember the 1950s, you know? <laughs> um, no, that actually happened to me when I was a kid. No way. Yeah, they, we, my family bought these encyclopedias from this guy with like a briefcase and a tie. We got like a 10 series. <laughs> I mean, shit. Yeah. It's, it's just kind of crazy that like, you know, school libraries don't even carry encyclopedias anymore yeah. and stuff. But Google. Google. Yeah. Thanks to Heidi. <laughs> yeah. Is it? It's Hetty. I think Hedy, it's Hetty. Heidi. Hetty. That would be H-E-D-Y. Actually, she was H-E-D-Y, right? Yeah. Okay. It's Hedy. actually Hedvig. Oh, that's anyway. right. My bad. <laughs> I How could I forget? Anyway. Okay. My next Also, one. wait. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned owls in your first two stories. Mm-hmm. Did so I? the first lady owned oh, an owl and yeah. the second lady was named... <laughs> Hedvig. Yeah. Was the original... Not yeah. named after an owl. What's the opposite of that? the originator of Hedwig's she, name. OG. The OG Hedwig. Hedvig. One of my friends has a sister named Hedvig. It's, um... Really? Yeah, they're Swedish. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, you know those people from across the pond, whatever. Anyway. All right, number seven for me is uh, somebody who goes by the name Nellie Bly, which is, like, the coolest name ever. It's a cool name. <laughs> I know, right? It sounds like, uh, I don't know, like, I guess I think of, like, The Haunting of Bly Manor, but it just sounds like a, like a <laughs> gothic novel heroine, yeah. you know? All right, so this one I got from the uh, New York Historical Society website, so it's super legit. Um, it's a good, reliable source. Anyway, um, Elizabeth Cochran was born on May 5th in 1864 in Cochran Mills, Pennsylvania, the town founded by her father. I was going to say, she's got the same last mm-hmm. name as the town. Yeah, so her father, um, Judge Michael Cochran, he was the town founder. So another bitch that comes from privilege, but, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Nepotism baby. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth had 14 siblings. Oh my gosh. <laughs> These women had so many. How many acres did they Yeah, have? right, right, right. Um, her father had 10 children from his first marriage and five children from his second marriage to Elizabeth's mother, uh, Mary Jane Kennedy. So, And what year was this? Sorry. This was in 60, 1864. So remarrying is kind of an, an interesting thing. That probably didn't happen very much back then. Um, so it actually affected her uh, a lot because... Um, his family, in general, just lived very comfortably. Unfortunately, he died when Elizabeth was only six, 
and his fortune was divided among his many children, uh, leaving Elizabeth uh, and her mother and her siblings, like the five of them, kind of with a small fraction of that, so they didn't have as much of it. Uh, Elizabeth's mother soon remarried, but quickly divorced her second husband because of abuse and relocated the family to Pittsburgh. So kind of tumultuous growing up, but she had enough support. Um, Elizabeth knew that she would need to support herself financially because of the situation. So at the age of 15, she enrolled in school in Indiana. Her plan was to graduate and find a position as a teacher. Don't do that shit. Um, however, <laughs> cough, cough. yeah. after only a year and a half, Elizabeth ran out of money and could no longer afford the tuition mood. She Get moved it. back to Pittsburgh <laughs> to help her mother run a boarding house. Um, in 1885, Elizabeth read an article in the Pittsburgh Dispatch that argued a woman's place was in the home to be a helpmate to a man, quote, she strongly disagreed with this opinion and sent an angry letter to the editor, anonymously signed "Lonely Orphan Girl," <laughs> which is so dramatic. That is super dramatic. I love that. Um, She's not even an orphan. No. <laughs> um, the newspaper editor George A. Madden was so impressed with the letter that he published a note asking the lonely orphan girl to reveal her name. Elizabeth marched into the dispatch office and introduced herself. Madden immediately offered her a job as a columnist. So that's pretty cool. I wish my bitching got me more jobs. Right, right? But insane. no. Now you get like a five dollar off coupon to whatever like restaurant you can. I'll tell you what. If I <laughs> one time I I was having a really bad day at work and I went to the market and picked up like a thing of cookie dough and I was like I'm gonna make myself some cookies to feel better and I put them in the oven. You know how those cookie dough sheets they break into like little cubes, mm-hmm. right? And then easy, you easy. and then they yeah. turn into cookies. These baked into hard cubes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm about to end it all. I am about Toll to house. end it yeah. all. And they were and they were nasty. And so I like messaged the company. I'm not trying to put them on blast here. And I was like, help, this sucks. And they sent me a coupon for $5 off the next one. I'm like, I'm not buying your shit anymore. No. Come on. Um, but yeah, That's funny. it is pretty funny. And you signed it, Lonely Orphan <laughs> Girl. Lonely Orphan Girl. Um, okay. <laughs> so shortly after her first article was published, Elizabeth changed her pseudonym from Lonely Orphan Girl to Nellie Bly after a popular song. Hard left. Okay. Hard left. Yeah, I get it. She was like, I'm tired of my <laughs> my goth face. Um, Elizabeth positioned herself as an investigative reporter. She went undercover at a factory where she experienced unsafe work conditions, poor wages, and long hours, the huge. You know. Um, her honest reporting about the horrors of workers' lives attracted negative attention from local factory owners, obviously. Um, her investigative journaling into poor working conditions in factories would actually like predate more famous reports, such as that of like Upton Sinclair, oh, by like yes. a couple decades. Mm-hmm. You know, he was doing the meatpacking industry, but it was right. like the same kind of vibe. Same like, idea. Right. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth's boss did not want to anger Pittsburgh's elite with her writing any further and quickly set to resign her to resign her to this like society page and she's like fuck you and fuck that I don't want to write about like town gossip um so Elizabeth <laughs> positioned herself as an um oh wait sorry I already read that she to escape writing about women's issues on the society page Elizabeth volunteered to travel to Mexico um she lived there as an international correspondent for the dispatch for 6 months uh when she returned she was again assigned to the society page and promptly quit <laughs> she's like fuck you <laughs> so i love that um Elizabeth hoped uh, the massive newspaper industry New York City had would be a little bit more welcoming and open-minded to female journalists, and so she left Pittsburgh. Um, Although several newspapers turned down her application because she was a woman, she was eventually given the opportunity to write for Joseph Pulitzer's New York World. 
uh, in her first act of stunt journalism for the world, Elizabeth pretended to be mentally ill and arranged to be a patient at New York's Insane Asylum for the Poor. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> yeah. That must be the most scary yeah. situation. I know. Uh, it was on Blackwell's Island. I don't know where that is. But um, for 10 days, Elizabeth experienced the physical and mental abuse suffered by patients. Elizabeth's report about Blackwell's Island earned her a permanent position as an investigative journalist for the world. She published her articles in a book titled 10 Days in a Madhouse. In it, she explained that New York City invested more money into care for the mentally ill after her articles were published. She was satisfied to know that her work led to change, which is, like, super cool. Yeah, um, cool. Yeah. Ugh, okay. Active journalists, uh, activist journalists like Elizabeth, commonly known as muckrackers, as we so lovingly called ourselves in the opening of our show, um, yeah, muck, the queens of muckrackery, if you will. Um, they were an important part of reform movements. So Elizabeth's investigations brought attention to inequalities and often motivated others to take action, which is super cool. She uncovered the abuse of women by male police officers, identified an employment agency that was stealing from immigrants, and exposed corrupt politicians. Um, she also interviewed influential and controversial figures, including the anarchist and feminist Emma Goldman in 1893. Um, my favorite story about her, though, is she had a famous trip around the world in 1889, for which she had two goals. OK, first, she wanted to prove that women were capable of traveling just as well, if not better than men. OK, uh, Elizabeth traveled light, taking only the dress she wore, a cape and a small traveler's bag. She challenged the stereotypical assumption that women could not travel without many suitcases, outfit changes, and vanity items, <laughs> which is silly. Secondly, and most importantly, uh, she wanted to beat the record set in the popular fictional world tour from Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. So she did it in 72. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> which I love. Um, her world tour made her a celebrity, and after her return, she toured the country as a lecturer. Her image was used on everything from playing cards to board games. And she recounted her adventures in her final book, Around the World in 72 Days. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I thought she was so cool. I like when, like, women in history were people who are, like, unearthing inequalities. Oh, yeah. Because we're still doing that today. Yeah. But it's cool to see, like, the people who are like, this is fucked up now, and I'm not letting it slide yeah. now. No, so. absolutely. The The scary thing about going into the asylum is, mm -hmm. like, how do you convince them that you're undercover mm -hmm. after? Like, after the 10 days how is over, how did she escape? And that's American Horror Story season two. <laughs> I knew. Okay, I knew that I had seen that before. That's where That it must was. be where it's inspired it by. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but, yeah, she was, she was badass. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's actually really interesting that you mentioned Upton Sinclair because we've all we've all read that book, right? But it's like she was the original. She wrote she wrote twice as many books as him, and on top of that, she traveled. Yeah, Very <laughs> it's cool. like it's crazy that you know we all have to read The Jungle in middle school, mm -hmm. get traumatized from that, and never eat McDonald's yeah. again for a while, for and a then while. you come back. <laughs> right, but like, why don't we read this kind of stuff? I don't know. Did you know that they're making people watch Super Size Me in schools? Oh, I remember having to watch that. Yikes. Morgan Spurlock, where are they now? Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. There's an interesting podcast. Well, I'm getting off on a tangent now. I love it. This is like my other podcast recommendation. It's called um, Maintenance Phase, and mm -hmm. they do an episode about Super Size Me, and they reveal like all of the inaccuracies in there. So Oof. go watch that or listen to that. Didn't he? Didn't Morgan Spurlock get in trouble for being a, a naughty boy? He sure did. Uh. They talk about that too. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> good. That's very cool. Nellie Bly, you're a badass bitch. It's true. You. And we love you. What is that called? Yellow journalism? When you like un yeah, I think so. Muckracking. Muckrackery. Muckraking. All right. Are we good on time? Mm. Yeah. Which number are you on? Seven. Yeah. Okay. Good for me. 
All right, so my number seven is Wangari Mathai. She was born in 1940, and I'll just tell you who she was right up front. She uh-huh. was the founder of the Green Belt Movement and the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize laureate. So Wangari was born in Nairi, a rural, rural, can never say that word, rural area of Kenya in 1940. She was extremely well-educated. She obtained a degree in biological sciences from Mount St. Scholastica College and a Master of Science degree from the University of Pittsburgh and pursued doctoral studies in Germany and the University of Nairobi before obtaining a PhD from the University of Nairobi where she taught veterinary anatomy. Hell yeah. So many degrees. Yeah. Degrees and degrees degrees. Yeah. She was the first woman in East and Central Africa to earn a doctorate degree. Um, she was also active in the National Council of Women of Kenya and was its chairman from 1991 to 1987. Excuse me. <coughs> oh, okay. In 1976, while she was serving in the National Council of Women, Professor Mathai introduced the idea of community-based tree planting. Hmm. So she continued to develop this idea into a broad-based grassroots organization, which we know today as the Green Belt Movement or the GBM, and their main focus is poverty reduction and environmental conservation through tree planting. She is internationally acknowledged for her struggle for democracy, human rights, and environmental con- conservation. She served on the board of so many organizations. She actually addressed the UN on a number of occasions and spoke on behalf of women in special sessions of the General Assembly during her five-year review of the Earth Summit. The GBM, or the Green Belt Movement, has planted over 51 million trees in Kenya. Um, it works at the grassroots national and international levels now to promote environmental conservation build climate resilience, and empower communities, especially women and girls, and it fosters a democratic space and sustainable livelihoods. Hell. So thank you, Wangari, for founding the Green Belt Movement. Hell yeah. That was really, really cool. That is cool. Um, I believe she passed away. Let me look up um, the date. I don't know if it's in there. I think I put the pass away date for most people. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry. She is still alive. Excuse me, Wangari. She was born April 1st, 1940, still alive. Oh, yeah, but she, she how, how old is she now? Must be up, getting up there. <laughs> I'm not good at quick maths. Hold on. <laughs> I'm not either. 71. I'd, 71. I 71. mean, that's, that's not that bad. Come no. on. She's, she's got a lot. Honestly, yeah, and a lot. people like that get good karma, so she'll probably live for a while. The, true. Or you know what's crazy is you always see the people that live to be like 115 are like people who are like, I smoke a pack of cigarettes every day and <laughs> yeah, I go to the store and get me a, a Mountain Dew and that's why I live so long. That's right. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So yeah. all the like health blogs, I think you're full of shit. My papa like lived forever, and every morning for breakfast he would have biscuits and sausage. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. that was his breakfast. But anyways, Bengari's really cool. I think 51 million trees is like insane. That is crazy. That's so many trees. Um, I mean, probably not matching the rate that we cut them down. Um, but that's okay. But yeah, she's a really badass environmentalist. I would and I would recommend everybody read up on her. That's fantastic. Um. The next person I have is not an environmentalist. She's a spitfire, though. Um, and you might have actually heard of her. Her name's Victoria Claffin Woodhull. Um, she's probably most famously known as the first person or first woman to run for president. Um, I have not heard of her. Yeah, okay. Which probably says more about me than it does <laughs> No, I don't think many people knew that somebody ran, like, the first woman to run for president was from, like, 1838. Whoa. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay, let's get into this gig, girl. Yeah, okay, so Victoria Claffin, uh, later Victoria Woodhull, was born September 23rd, 1838, to an illiterate mother and a petty criminal father. So off to a good start. Power couple. Yeah. (laughs) As a child in rural Ohio, Woodhull purportedly believed that she could communicate with three siblings who had died in infancy, 
and that she could heal the sick. So she was like, I'm magic. Wow. <laughs> um, always on the lookout for a good money-making scheme. Her father put her and her sister Tennessee to work telling fortunes and contacting spirits. <laughs> so. Not LuLaRoe. <laughs> yeah. No, they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll talk to your dead uncle. Um, oh, my gosh. The, hey, but she, but she, okay, so she said she could do it before her dad. Well, she was set like a kid. Up. She was like a little kid. He was like, I actually was hey, talking to my son. Yeah, you know? I mean, maybe. <laughs> I was like, let's make money. <laughs> yeah, but he was like, cool. So I love this thing you're doing. Can we do it let's harder? Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Never yeah. do anything you're good at for free. That's, her, that's like, the dad's motto. It's like a family channel on YouTube. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Um, the family also went to an alternative uh, healing business, selling life elixirs, giving massages, and offering cures for diseases ranging from cancer to asthma. <laughs> but okay. although Woodhill later claimed to have made a small fortune during the Civil War as a traveling medical clairvoyant, she and Tennessee both had their share of setbacks. Tennessee, for example, was indicted for manslaughter in Illinois after one of her cancer patients died. Wait, like, Tennessee? Who's Tennessee's that? her sister. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Which is a cool name. Tennessee Claffin yeah. also has, like, a lot of interesting things about her. And she and her sister are often paired together in, like, their autobiographies or their biographies gotcha. okay. and stuff. Yeah, so. Um, upon moving to New York City in 1868, Victoria and Tennessee began working as clairvoyants for the railroad baron Cornelius Vanderbilt. <laughs> okay. Vanderbilt's like, I need some psychics I, yeah, on my team. Yeah, I didn't team. know that would um, be a thing, but okay. <laughs> Uh, he distrusted medically trained doctors because he's a billionaire. So he was like, "Let me hire some clairvoyants." I'm just imagining him on like Indeed.com. It's like, literally this is what I need. You know, what? it's so funny to me because he's literally like the Elon Musk of his time. So like him, you to space. Him and Rockefeller were like Zuck and, and Musk back in the day. Yeah. And so this totally checks. He's like, I don't trust media. Yeah. I don't trust doctors. You have an education. Ew. Ew. I I, yeah. So. Uh, Tennessee also apparently became Vanderbilt's lover and oh. may have even received a marriage proposal from him, which is interesting. Um, stock tips gleaned from this relationship proved handy during the 1869 gold panic, during which the sisters claimed to have netted around $700,000, which is quite a bit oh of money. Um, Back the, then, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because they were getting stock tips from a Vanderbilt. Um, you know, run the system from the inside, bitch. I respect the hustle. I really do. Um <laughs> With Vanderbilt's financial backing, Victoria and Tennessee then opened their own highly publicized firm named Woodhull, Claffin & Co., becoming the first female stockbrokers on Wall Street. What a hard left turn from being a clairvoyant. <laughs> like, <laughs> they were turning tricks on the side of the road, and now they're like, actually, Wall Street, which kind of tracks. Stockbrokers. I mean, um, nevertheless, they, <laughs> they never gained a seat on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, something no woman would achieve until... 1967. <laughs> wow, like a hundred years later. Yeah, wow. literally. But they were they were the first. Um, so she was also the first woman to address a congressional committee. Woodhull attended a female suffrage convention in January 1969, nice, and became a devout believer in the cause. Not long afterward, she befriended Massachusetts Congressman Benjamin Butler, for whom she cajoled an invitation to testify before the House of Judiciary Commission uh, committee. On January 11th, 1871, Woodhull declared to the panel that women had already won the right to vote. Under the recently enacted 14th and 15th Amendment, women are citizens, she argued, and the citizen who is taxed should also have a voice in the subject matter of taxation, period. Although uh, the committee... Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Although the committee rejected her partition, uh, petition to pass enabling legislation, her history-making appearance immediately propelled her into a leadership position among suffragettes, which is cool. We love that. Um, that does go downhill later, though. <laughs> 
In April 1870, just two months after um, opening her brokerage firm, Woodhull announced her candidacy for president of the United oh States. It, it was very much giving, like, Kanye West energy, yeah. you know, at the time. Her resume was all over the place. She's like, listen, who else do you want in the White House? A psychic baron of, of industry? I think that that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> Uh, she campaigned on a platform of women's suffrage, regulation of monopolies, nat- uh, naturalization, or wait, uh, nationalization of railroads, and eight-hour workday, direct taxation, abolition of the death penalty, and welfare for the poor, among other things. I mean, slay. Yeah. <laughs> frankly. Yeah. She was like, um, I need you to build that monorail across the country, Elon. <laughs> Essentially. Um, in addition... Was, do you think Vanderbilt was still in her ear at this time, or did they... I don't Do you know. know if they cut ties or... I don't know. So <laughs> Maybe. I mean, if he was... Lover yeah, he's probably around. Yeah. You know how the, the elite are. Yeah. Anyway. Always sticking around. For real. <laughs> um, so, in addition to promoting herself in her weekly newspaper, Woodhill organized an equal rights party, which nominated her at its May 1872 convention. Famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass was selected as her running mate. Mm. He never acknowledged it, however. <laughs> 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 and, in fact, campaigned for Republican uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Woodhull was furthermore hurt by embarrassing details about her private life, which came to light during a lawsuit that her mother brought against her second husband. In the end, Woodhull's name appeared on ballots in at least some states. No one knows how many votes she received because they apparently weren't counted. Oh, that's so embarrassing. And also, maybe she won. <laughs> you don't know. They just yeah, were like, wait, not out. counted because of the lack of, like, like quantity or... Be- they, I think because she was a lady. They're like, what's this joker oh, doing? Oh, okay. So, oh, okay. They just straight they just up didn't, didn't count her votes. Wow. I know. Also, like, Frederick Douglass, that's kind of, like, rude of you to not acknowledge it and then vote for these. <laughs> but he was like, who's this fucking... It's like It's like Kanye declaring Obama his running right. mate. He's like... Because I guess you can technically do You can do whoever. it. You can yeah. do whatever you want. She was like, you... <laughs> this, guy, yeah, this guy. This guy. This um, guy. It didn't work out quite <laughs> no. um, What's really funny, though, is that she went on to spend election day in jail... <laughs> So, um, <laughs> a few days before um, the presidential election in, in 72, Woodhull published an article in her newspaper aimed at exposing popular preacher Henry Ward Beecher, Beecher the preacher, <laughs> as an adulterous hypocrite. He said, fuck this guy, he's cheating on his wife, and he's in the church, get his ass. Um, the backlash was immediate, and Beecher's supporters helped uh, garner arrest warrants for Victoria and Tennessee on charges of sending obscene material through the mail. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. Wow. Okay. Uh-huh. They also faced libel charges over a second article that accused a Wall Street trader of getting two teenage girls drunk and seducing them. Get their asses, Victoria. For real. Um, police took the sisters into custody on November 2nd, and they remained in jail for about a month. Additional arrests followed, including one after a briefly on the lam Woodhall snuck up on stage to disguise her uh, disguise in order to give a speech. So she... <laughs> She would just dress like a man and sneak onto stages to give speeches. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a common theme in a lot of yeah, like, people. People yeah. just dress like a man and get away with whatever I'm, you want to get away with. Like, that's a real girly man. Yeah. I really like what's coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Uh, anyway. His voice is so light. <laughs> oh, wow. Am I gay? <laughs> that's the plot of Mulan. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, the sisters were eventually found not guilty, but not before taking a beating in the press. The harshest critics include Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was Beecher's sister and, and the author of Uncle Tom's cabin boo who called woodhull a vile jailbird and an impudent witch and then cartoonist thomas nass depicted her as quote mrs satan (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Iconic. <laughs> I, love, I, love, I love everything about this bitch. I really do. Um, Woodhill often spoke about uh, sex on the lecture circuit, saying, among other things, that women should have the right to escape bad marriages and control their own bodies. Even more, I know. Wow. Even more shocking to Victorian sensibilities, she espoused free love. I want the love of you all promiscuously, she once declared. Um, it makes no difference who or what you are, old or young, black or white, pagan, Jew or Christian. I want to love you all and be loved by you all, and I mean to have your love. Wow. I will I will have it, and I can't, <laughs> I can't have it, and I will, or whatever. Um, Woodhill practice, uh, practice what she preached. At one point, living with her ex-husband, her husband, and her lover at the same apartment, yet she also knew when to hold back her amorous affections. So let women's issues... Uh, she said, let women issue a declaration of independence sexually and absolutely refuse to cohabit with men until they are acknowledged as equals in everything. And the victory would be won in a single week, she wrote. Oh, so basically keep that cookie in a cookie jar. <laughs> she, said, then... <laughs> she said, demand equal rights and keep your pussy in your pants. And then we'll win the equal rights <laughs> <Win> immediately. <laughs> Honestly, like, she's not wrong. She's not wrong. She's not wrong. Um, Woodhill also became an automobile enthusiast, donated money and services to townspeople around her estate, traveled overseas to run again for U.S. president in 1892, <laughs> founded a short-lived <laughs> agriculture school, and volunteered with the Red Cross during World War I. Um, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and other giants of the women's suffrage movement embraced Woodhull around the time of her congressional appearance, but they soon had a falling out, in part over Woodhull's political ambitions and love for the limelight. She did not get invited to speak at suffrage conventions following her first run for president, and Anthony even advised a British suffrage leader not to meet with her. Quote, both sisters are regarded as lewd and indecent, Anthony wrote in a letter. Moreover, when Anthony Stanton and Matilda Johnson Gage published a comprehensive history of the women's suffrage movement in 1880, they essentially left Woodhill out entirely. Oh. Petty bitches, but that's why we don't that's know about funny. her. Yeah. And she's insane, right? Hot mess express. <laughs> I, I love, love it. it so I much. love where that train is going. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I, that's I, one of my favorite stories, I think. That is great. So <laughs> the first presidential race went so poorly, she was like, run it back. She's like, again. again, I'm running again. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> okay, I like you're taking like all like the, the funny ones, and I'm like, mine are nice. <laughs> no, I think down. yours are important. My top five are funnier. Yeah. Okay, number six, I have Nana as Ma'u. Mm. So Nana was a princess a poet, and she was considered the precursor to modern feminism in Africa. Slay. So thank you, Nana. She was born into the Sokoto Caliphate, so I had to actually, I took a, I had a lot of, like, Islamic studies in college, and I even had to go back and Google what a, what a caliphate was, but it's essentially an Islamic state, so, like, if, if um, Muslim is, like, the main practicing religion, like, they set up, oh, cool. yeah, um, basically states, so known as a caliphate. So that caliphate, the Sokoto Caliphate, spanned present-day Cameroon, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Nigeria. In 1793, her family was part of a fundamental Islamic sect that focused on the pursuit of knowledge as a spiritual path. So she kind of had an end to education that a lot of like other women really didn't. Right. Um, she had a super excellent education from a very, very young age. She learned all of the Islamic classics. She even memorized the entire Quran. Oh, god damn. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> That's insane, yeah. Oh my gosh. And was fluent in four languages. Holy shit. Incredible. Um, she wrote poetry in the first three languages, and she became, well, and I, I wrote down the languages, but they're, like, some of them are Islamic languages, mm -hmm. so I didn't think it would mean too much to a lot of people listening. Um, and she became well-known in um, in her time for her poems. Her poetry addressed all sorts of topics, like the divine truth, Sufi women saints, Muhammad, and jihad battles. 
and also provided the entire world with a window into the turbulent political atmosphere at the time that she was experiencing. Much of her poetry also placed a really strong emphasis on women leaders and the rights of women within the community, which was very uncommon under Islamic law because yeah. a lot of women were silenced and actually yeah. not even allowed to be part of scholarly articles or anything yeah. like that. So along with her work, she taught in her community, and she even, this is really cool, so she realized that she couldn't like reach all of the caliphate by herself, so she ended up training a large network of women as educators, and then she said, be free, like oh go God. teach my poetry and everything like that. So the women memorized her poetry as a teaching device to use in instructing Islamic women. The group of women was called Yan Taru, excuse my pronunciation, but it basically means those who congregate together or the sisterhood. So this group of people traveled throughout the Islamic state, educating women and passed on their education to others. So it was like mm-hmm. it was like a multi-level marketing scheme but for, for education. But for like learning. Uh, it was a very positive. That's one. what education is still. Literally, <laughs> yes. Um but it was really interesting and also another thing about her knowing so many languages is she could reach so many different groups of people oh, that yeah. knowing one language you, you couldn't. So a lot of her poetry you can find it in several different languages so she could reach a bunch of you know, I think it's funny that she was like, look, I'm going to get a whole group of people and then I'm going to make them memorize my poetry. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and then they're going to recite Self-promotion. it to Self-promotion, I love it. It's <laughs> kind too. of like, uh, it's kind of like your last person, what was her name again? Oh, Victoria Claff. It was kind of like Victoria writing a newsletter about herself and putting her, her own articles in it. I love <laughs> yeah. it. Okay, so today Nana Nana's work still inspire all Muslim women all over the world. Well, I can't say all Muslim, I can't speak for all Muslim women, but Muslim women all over the world. Her life and works are a testimony to women, a woman's right to pursue education and to be active in pursuing social issues. So she left an incredibly strong legacy for generations of really strong African women who still refer to her to this day as an example. Hey. So thanks, Nana. We love you, bitch. Yeah, very cool. I also, I wanted to, I feel like a lot of, when you look up these articles, a lot of these women are like white women from like Christian or etc. And I really wanted to feature somebody from like Islam because we don't really see that. Mm-hmm. Well, especially because, like, Islam, like I said, a lot of women didn't have voices in their historical yeah. documents or anything like that, so Nana was just like, excuse me, um, I'm here. I'm here, yeah. yeah. I love that. I think that that might be where we leave you guys off with this episode. We're going to do a little two-parter for you, because we just, like, love to talk about a fun bitch. We just love to talk <laughs> about a fun bitch. Um, so, before we go, we just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to us this past year. It's been so fun to do this show. I've had so much fun doing it. Yeah, you know, the pod closet. The pod closet, and we've <laughs> kind of found our stride now. So we're so excited to bring you guys more and more stuff this year. But um, anyway, we love you. Thanks, friends. You're the best. Love and you. bye. It has been so lovely having you in for our little tête-à-tête. If you have any further tittle-tattles or salacious salutations, you may contact us on the World Wide Web at tensontenspodcast.com or you may follow the ladies on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at tensontenspodcast. That's 10S-O-N-10S-podcast or via email at tensontenspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, ta-ta and toodle-doo!